Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers, and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Yanara Friedland, is a German-American writer, translator, and teacher. Friedland has a doctorate in creative writing from the University of Denver and is the recipient of a 2016 German Academic Exchange Service research grant in support of a collection of essays written collaboratively in the German, Polish, and U.S.-Mexican borderlands. Friedland is the author of the chapbook Abrak Adhabra, I Will Create As I Speak, published by Essay Press. 
She was also a member of the Poets Theater Group GASP, Girls Assembling Something Perpetual, and on the board of the directors of POG, the Poetry Collective and Reading Series in Tucson, Arizona. Yanara Friedland is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest book, the winner of the Noemi Press Fiction Prize, entitled Uncountry, a Mythology. Publishers Weekly says of Uncountry, Friedland's unclassifiable hybrid debut balances the fantasy of myth and the linguistic grace of poetry in works of prose. Subtitled A Mythology, the book gathers myths, origin stories, and fairy tales and ties them to modernity to weave a narrative of humans' dreams and endless wanderings. Freeling crafts with grace and care a book like a translated dream, messy but familiar, brimming with something just beyond one's grasp. Writer Lily Huang adds, as a descendant of Chantal Ackerman and Una Kazurn, among others, Friedland reimagines the origin myth. Friedland's permeable pages allow the reader entryway into a mirror that becomes an open door, a door through which we hear the echo of Anna Mendieta telling us there is no original past to redeem, there is the void. Uncountry is an invitation to that void, and Friedland serves as dream guide through this blend of the personal, political, and stunningly poetic. Welcome to Between the Covers, Yanara Friedland. Good to be here. So Uncountry Mythology, as, as this introduction suggests, engages with origin stories and myths, with Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Ishmael, Hansel and Gretel. They all travel through the book, but sort of like in dreams where time is given a spatial dimension, their occurrence is overlaid with characters from other times. They're passing through a world that is also the world of you and your family, of 20th century wars, displacements, refugee migration, migrations. And another way to look at it might be that you and your family are passing through a world still inhabited by these origin stories and myths. So maybe we can start with the origin story of Uncountry um, as a project. Uh, how did you come to conceive of it, and what were some of the animating questions behind you starting this this uh, book project? So I, f- I would start by saying that um, a lot of these a lot of these stories came to me in one way or another. Uh, they they met me um, as I was thinking about. Um, you know, family histories. I was thinking about um, the different countries that I've lived in and that have formed me and in some ways that I wanted to reflect back on. And there were certain histories, particularly uh, in my family, that I was uh, really intrigued by, but that I only had sort of anecdotal uh, information about. So part of the initial writing was an attempt to fill in these gaps and to really uh, explore some of the legends of my family or some of the some of the myth- myths that had been passed down and then to write around them uh, and filling in my own with my own imagination filling sort of in that space that, that where there was nothing where there was silence so uh, I would say that the the one of the f- earliest stories I wrote was the the walk through the Hearts Mountains, which in some ways is a is a retracing of the story of my grandfather after the war, and I was very intrigued by his character. I never met him, 
And I had some, again, I had some facts and pieces that I was working with, but then there was a large silence around his his life story and, and what had happened. So I decided in some ways as a way to enter his story was to retrace, physically retrace where he had been um, and one place he had been where the, where the Hearts Mountains, uh, where he deserted as a soldier and, and basically walked from Eastern Germany all the way to Western Germany uh, in the sort of last throes of, of World War II. So I, I did this walk, and that's where a lot of the writing began with mm. with his story. Another strand, of course, is the um, is the is the Jewish family. So I had um, I, I actually traveled to the Ukraine, traveled to Odessa, where some of my ancestors came from. And did a similar kind of archaeological tracing or a digging up where I was visiting sites and and writing specifically at those sites around those around those people that I that I never met had never met before. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about what an uncountry is for you? Because I think this is crucial to people who haven't yet read the book. Um, this space that you've created where the, the book happens. I think uncountry means a lot of things to me. It's, it's hard to sort of just say that this is, this is the one definition I would give. Of course, there's the Helene Sassou. The, she actually handed that to me. So I was reading Helene Sassou quite extensively at the time. And she talks about this term uncountry, which she um, uses. I think in one instance, she talks about it in, in um, in relationship to the theater, but then she also talks about it in this book, Three Steps on the Ladder of Writing. And I was really struck by the by the by the term, but also the way she talks about it as a, as a word that does not exist, and this idea that uh, a word that does not exist, which I experience quite frequently, right? Being German, and then sort of there's being certain words that I know in German that I can't find in the English language. And so what happens with words or ideas that, that don't exist and how do we, how do we um, bring them into existence, into a kind of consciousness? Um, so that, that's, that was interesting to me, but also the, the notion that there is a space that um, is not, so, so uncountry to me in some ways is a lot about a, a kind of belonging that exists outside of Na- national, tribal, cultural belonging, and it's something that comes together for me in the in the weave of contentious storylines and the way they kind of accrete and the way they sort of supplement and um, and speak to each other. And how can we how how can belonging be created through that through through um, storylines that that are contentious and that in some ways are not um, really to, you know, of they don't really belong to each other, and yet they somehow exist in the same space. So that's that was another um, piece for me that was interesting. Um, and uncountry also for me means um, the country that is other to us, right? The space that I don't, that I'm not familiar with. So it's kind of an approach of the unfamiliar, mm. of of otherness, of of something that is mysterious and that sort of is underneath or, or next to or, or beyond. 
my well, reach. Well, she seems, Elen Sisu seems like um, the perfect emblem of the on country in the sense of being a French Algerian Jew who didn't associate as being primarily as being French or Algerian. And, and it's this idea of um, displacement also when we think about, uh, I, I believe it was her mother who w was fleeing Nazi Germany and her dad who was from Algeria but originally was from the expulsion from Spain. So you have all these displaced narrative histories that I imagine have would have a certain resonance for you with all of the countries you've lived in, and then this mystery around your own ancestry. Yeah, and that's that's of course another layer to it. So so displacement, all the the storylines in Uncountry deal on one in one way or another with displacement, dias various diasporas, um, various forms of exile. So I'm I'm very interested in um, in the sort of those in the in the migratory and the way in which um, also origin in some ways, you know, when you start tracing back origin stories or you start trying to figure out where something comes from, that it's, it's um, you notice very quickly that there isn't really one place, right? So there isn't really one country, one sort of um, fixed position. It becomes something much more moving and, and um, ambivalent, hmm. I guess. Well, when we think about exile and, and displacement and removal, which seems like, as you mentioned, a recurring motif in this book, not just the modern motif around Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, um, but even the way you put on equal footing the, um, the stories that get erased in the Bible. So we have the story of Lilith in relationship to Eve, Hagar in relationship to Sarah, Ishmael in relationship to Isaac. Um, the, the stories that sort of get pushed out of the center uh, from the biblical story. Uh, could you talk a little bit about w what you're interrogating and, and, um, and what the presence of these uh, figures are, is doing for, for on country? Yeah, so for me, those, uh, I, I would start by saying that I've, I've always really loved those figures. I grew up with... Um, sort of stories of, from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible, and was always really fascinated by uh, the sparseness of, of the accounts. So the drastic things happen in a very quick succession. Um, we're not really told ever why. Um, it's just sort of th there are these leaps made in the narrative that we're supposed to follow as the reader. And I was always uh, struck by that and thinking about what actually, you know, we never get really an indication of the inner lives of these figures either. So what happens really um, uh, internally when, for example, you know, uh, Abraham takes takes Isaac up to Mount Mor Moriah and is attempting this sacrifice that fails. Uh, what, how does Isaac feel about that? We never know, right? So that to me was always um, really intriguing and captivating I would say that for Uncountry specifically, I was interested in in the kind of universal themes that are held in those storylines too. So themes of betrayal, of sacrifice. So these are ancient stories and yet they reverberate into the present. And we can, even though there might not be a, a binding in that sense imaginable now, there's, there's still reverberations around the theme um, between father and son, for example, Abram and I Isaac. But 
specifically, um, I was interested in even, you know, in these shadow characters. So Hagar, for example, who's the maid of Sarah, right, who really gets very little space um, in the original source text. And so part of what I was doing and what I was interested in is sort of uh, looking at the um, ancient rabbinical uh, form of commentary called, called Midrash and sort of attempting a kind of Midrashic commentary on those on those stories. So I would I would look at those short pieces and then sort of start to provide my my own commentary on how I was reading between the lines into those into those absences. So that's Midrash is, is you know attempts to provide a commentary um, on a source text on the Torah um, and provides a sort of manifold um, reading a kind of hermeneutics um, and what is interesting about about midrash is, is that there's really if you look at um, the Talmud and you have all these rabbis arguing with each other on in the margins it's never really uh, it's never about coming to a conclusive resolution it's really just about consolidating multiple viewpoints um, on top of the source text and sort of contending with it, which I find is, is, a, is a really appealing way to approach truth or approaching uh, the essence of a story. Mm. And so fables and legends and anecdotes and um, hearsay would all sort of congregate around these, around these um, source texts. And so that was, that was uh, a technique that I used for on country and f specifically um, starting with these origin myths, if you will. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to writer Yanara Friedland about her latest book, Uncountry, a Mythology. You once said about your book that, in essence, the task the book proposes is to string and build connection to that and those beyond our immediate association of nation and citizenship, the identity markers we are born into and to imagine lineages that live within us contradicting inherited narratives. I do think, however, that this must always happen after a confrontation and untangling of our more immediate bonds, or in other words, the reaching beyond ourselves begins at the center, slowly rippling out. I want to emphasize that this is not a territorial act, claiming all kinds of sub subjectivities as our own, but rather an encounter at the boundary of I and thou, in Buber's words. I was hoping you could talk more about the difference between claiming subjectivities as our own and the encounter at the boundary of I and thou um, coming from Martin Buber's philosophy. Um, could you uh, maybe parse that out a little bit for us? So I think in part that this the quote that you just read um, speaks to an approach I have when I when I write um, and especially with this book something I did was um, really imagining myself in a room or in a place with these uh, subjects these people also stories or experiences sometimes objects that I was engaging with and so it was very much about the meeting space between myself um, and um, let's say a, a particular place, a particular landscape, and seeing what happened in between. So it's it's a it's a little bit difficult to explain exactly uh, what that looks like. But for me, it has something about where there's 
part of myself uh, that that approaches and part of the other that approaches and there's something something new that happens in the middle and it's almost like a th kind of third space right we can think of that um, and I think I'm you, uh, Margaret Yersena speaks about the lacuna, right, mm. that when she was writing the memoirs of, of Adrian, she was kind of very much, uh, it was very much about sort of bringing herself there and also very much sort of imagining Adrian, but then Hadrian, but then something completely other actually sort of coming out of that space in between their their um, intersections or where, where they intersected. And so um, I like that presence of the third um, as an idea um, so that I don't want to. Um, I don't want to pretend that I don't exist in that encounter, which is why, for me, the I is, a, is, a, is an important thread throughout the book. But I also am not interested in memoir per se, as just sort of you know that it's just about myself. So there's something about balancing those two spaces um, and and acknowledging their existence um, in equal measure. In terms of not fully claiming other subjectivities, I think it's it's a little bit more complicated. I I, I would say you know if I had decided to, for example, write and and I think in that way I'm also more comfortable with fragments and sort of this idea of the midrashic literature, right, where we can where there's where it's more about constellation and almost creating a kaleidoscope rather than sort of just asserting one version. So in that way, we get to see multiple subject positions, and that feels to me a little bit more um, real, hmm. perhaps, than um, fully assuming one position and then writing from that place. I don't know if this is a stretch to make this comparison, but when I think about what you're saying about the boundary between I and thou, and this third entity or, or thing that's created in that interaction, I wondered if you felt similarly about borders, uh, whether the border between, because you've walked borders as part of your uh, process of, of um, creating art, um, are borders between countries uh, a third thing more than what we think of them? Uh, or, or does that feel like a little bit of a stretch to to take that uh, that existential communion to a geographic space? No, I think that's actually quite accurate. I think there's something that happens at borders that is very unique, and that's part of been part of my interest in them is that there is, um, of course, it's um, there are things that go on on the geopolitical border that are highly problematic, and I don't want to just think of it as this wonderfully uh, invigorating, uh, inspiring place. But it's true that also having lived in the borderlands um, in the desert, having visited a lot of borders in Europe, that there are certain um, possibilities and potentials at the border um, as much as there are um, divisions and separations that I think are worthwhile exploring. And um, one, you know, in a very sort of simplistic way, you could say, you know, a border, as much as it divides and, and, and sort of um, keeps apart, it also joins, right? So the joining part and the kind of, the, the, again, the meeting that happens between, and, and the, the, the overlap too, right? Because a border is never actually clear cut. So even though you might have that geopolitical line, when you walk the border, you notice that that's a much more, uh, there's much more space that feels like a bordering um, transition space that 
where lots of things come to mingle and coexist in very interesting ways. Um, so it, it's also where, from a like scientific point of view, I was talking to someone who's been studying um, sort of the uh, from a from a botanical or even geological point of view that what happens in sort of certain border zones, and it's. Um, he was telling me that that's where things get wonky. So, you know, pine trees uh, growing next to uh, um, cactuses, for example. So things kind of that don't necessarily traditionally belong to each other somehow coexisting in that. So that, to me, is an exciting possibility um, to, to look into. Yeah. So by confronting displacement, whether in ancestral narratives with Say Hagar and Ishmael, or w with actual contemporary wars, the on country also, by um, comparison, seems to also be, be looking at the issue of home and and belonging. Uh, and the book opens with a quote from the Cuban American sculptor and performance artist Anna Mendieta, and in it she says, "There is no original past to redeem. There is the void, the orphanhood, the unbaptized earth of the beginning." the time that from within the earth looks upon us. There is above all the search for origin. And this seems to suggest, at least to me, that the, the search for home is not a search for a geographical home, as you've, you've mentioned yourself, but also that orphanhood might be a primordial human state in, in some sense, that one finds home in the search for home, not in landing in a space of home. I was wondering if you could just elaborate a little on uh, how Anna Mendieta finds herself at the at the beginning of On Country. Yeah, I've, I've I've for a long time been really influenced by her work, and and I love that quote. Actually, her writing is quite quite marvelous. Um, she's obviously known more for her performance and earthworks, but um, this particular peace and the the idea of um, origin really taught was really speaking to me as a uh, as a gate through which to walk into uncountry because it is in some ways that's where it it started it started as a as a seeking or a searching for origin for a kind of home for a kind of belonging and yet uh, realizing that it's actually um, more of an orphanhood that that sort of um, that the book inhabits or that um, where the book lands. And so um, I was also thinking a lot about uh, Simon Weil's notion of that we need to be rooted in, in the absence of place. So the rooting in, in an absence of place or the, the rooting in, in the not being home is, is a, becomes a kind of home as well. Um, so, so to me, those, those, those ideas are really important. And, and in some ways, I think also home is something that needs to be maybe be redefined as a term. I mean, lots of the, the moment, lots of the, um, the words that I use in Uncountry that are sort of the, the titles for certain pieces are also an attempt to re uh, an attempt of reinscription. So trying to think about, what does origin actually mean? Or what does betrayal maybe mean? What is sort of breaking open language and sort of dissecting it in a certain way 
and looking behind what is what is that word covering that hasn't been sort of thought of before. And so home for me, it was is a big word and it's it's burdened and it's it feels heavy. And so part of the walk with Uncountry was about trying to make it lighter and also trying to claim it in a, in a new way. Well, when you, I like that you say part of the walk of Uncountry because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about or hear more from you a little bit about walking in, re, in relationship to um, finding home in the search for home. Because I know you, you walking is a, um, is a big practice for you, it seems like. And that I've also read that you like to write when you're in movement on a train crossing an ocean. Um, and I would love to know uh, about creating literature through walking for you. Um, if walking is a gesture towards searching for home, um, is the movement through space more important than where you're walking towards when you're doing the walks? Um, and is it connected to any past practices of walking? It, do you see it connected to pilgrimage or do you see it connected to uh, the movement of refugees, uh, forced walking? Yeah, I think, again, walking is, feels that the, 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 it, ha- it holds many different, um, it holds many different sort of motivators and, and uh, you know, there are lots of reasons why people walk. And so part of um, my second, the second manuscript, Abrakat Habra, being part of that manuscript was about really exploring the different ways people walk and how what what walking can hold and one way uh, one, one aspect was forced migration I was looking at people crossing the Mediterranean and I had been interviewing um, asylum seekers and, and refugees who had come into into Europe after after their journey was complete and then also looking at walking as pilgrimage, so I was looking at a lot of pilgrimage. There are lots of roads and pathways and um, ancient pilgrimage trails throughout Europe that you can still walk. So I was doing some walking there and, and writing, um, writing while I was on, on pilgrimage. And then, and then another, another aspect of, of walking for me has has to do with um, actually similarly to, to the way writing happens, which is that a lot of it is about being nowhere particular. So it's a kind of dislocation that I appreciate when I'm in a, in a writing space and, and a way of being almost just an observation and in witness, staring at things, getting lost in things, being... Um, being disoriented, that is productive for me. So walking in a f- as a physical activity is the closest I can get to that state, um, mm. and that resembles writing for me. So I do like to write in movement, um, but maybe even what I like more than writing is really just thinking and sort of being, um, being in the world, being sort of wrapped wrapped in it in a way that is not necessarily about um, making sense of it. Yeah. Do you see, um, do you associate the idea of like, of a movable space, uh, of home, finding home and movement as a particularly Jewish 
thing. And I, I think of a couple things with regards to that. Like, for instance, I think of Hebrew being sort of this transitional language in a way that it's both still pictorial. It's referencing a, a, a actual space and what was seen in that space, and yet it's also phonetic. And so it's, it's portable in a, in, a, in a way. It's like exile can happen within the language of the... I don't know if I'm making sense, but I'm, I'm curious about yeah. about um, movable spaces and and uh, wandering with regards to Jewish identity. If you had any thoughts on that, yeah, I think there's um, th- there's definitely a, a lot to say about the way uh, Jewish identity is often built on that idea, right? So, so which is also why text is so important, right, traditionally, because it's something that is portable, something that can be, you know, in the in the absence of a physical homeland, we have books, we have texts that can be can be carried stories. So that I think that is that's definitely very much a sort of Jewish um, Jewish practice. The other thing that is interesting, um, if you look at Yiddish, for example, um, as a language you know, this is this was a language that was never canonized fully, or that had real issues at being canonized, and it was sort of this um, hybrid language that was sort of mixing Slavic and Hebrew and German, and it was sort of hard to place, and so it was something that um, uh, people, when writing in Yiddish initially, or um, even sort of in the like 18th, 19th century in Europe, it was uh, hard to 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 call it literature or to to have a, a readership for it, and so it was also something that developed because of the movement, you know, of of, of Jewish people in particularly Eastern Europe, and never really having um, one particular place where they could practice their language. So it became this kind of mishmash, and that I think is again um, very particular to the Jewish identity. Um, I think. I am very interested in in Jewish stories around exile and and sort of nomadic living, whether that is because of you know being forced to or um, by choice, but having this kind of nomadic existence. I think there's a lot to be explored there, and yet also uh, more recently, I found myself wanting to to not over identify with that either. The archetype of the wandering Jew. You know, it's an archetype, and again, as as with other archetypes, there's some real truth to that, and it's very compelling to explore that lineage. And yet, I also think it can cover up something that might be more more relevant. Um, so, so or not more relevant, but perhaps more comprehensive, so and inclusive. So, it's it's definitely an aspect of Jewish identity, and I think there are other things too to look at as well that perhaps don't, are not considered when just thinking of Jews as wandering, as, as moving, as, as sort of homeless. Yeah. Well, if we think about holding a space open for complexity, which I think the Uncountry does, one of the ways in which I feel like it does this is with the first prologue, uh, which I, I'm hoping you'll speak a little bit about, because um, it feels like it does some some work to set up some expectations around the book. It's a brief story of an unnamed woman in Germany whose husband dies and who quickly becomes homeless, a wanderer, a refugee, hungry and starving, 
who ends up murdering uh, a, a random old woman on the road for her shoes and her food. And it seems somehow important to me that this unnamed woman who opens the book is both a victim and a victimizer. Uh, I, I would love to hear what this prologue is, is um, why it's in this place in the book and, and, and what your thoughts are on it. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that specifically, this idea of victim and victimizer. I think that story, that prologue, came out of direct came actually directly out of a, a sort of midrashic exercise I did on some specific lines from um, I believe it was both um, coming from from the story of Lilith that I was reading and then also or the the little excerpts I could find on her but then also the story of Ruth who's another kind of important female figure in in, in the Hebrew Bible and so I was again interested in um, both of those, the, both of those women are sort of anti-heroines. You know, they're not. They they do things that are problematic, that are dark, that are um, using using power in in um, in ways that trespass. And so I think uh, when I started writing that particular story, I was interested in the way um, a, a woman women tres- have trespassed through, throughout history. Mm. And also, um, it was a, in some ways an inversion of the Adam and Eve story too. So thinking of that, you know, thinking of that story and how Lilith, for example, interrupts the, the narrative of Adam and Eve. So Lilith being the first wife of Adam and being the more rebellious um, female um, partner in, in some ways who who's banned um, God bans her after she supposedly refuses to uh, have intercourse with Adam and being um, I think below him that was the that was the, the argument and so as a consequence Adam asks God to to ban her and so she's banned actually to the Black Sea so there was this link to you know one of my ancestors coming from the Black Sea um, and then this this at least in my mind, she's at the Black Sea. Maybe she's at the Red Sea, but in my mind, it's like she's 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 at the Black Sea, and she's kind of wandering, and she's she's banished. And this idea of banishment was um, important for the Lilith chapter as a kind of entry point. So the prologues, in some ways, also for me function as as gateways. So they kind of set up what happens um, thematically and 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 almost in terms of tone, what follows. In that in that particular history, I think this would be a great time to hear some of the prose, if you didn't mind reading a little bit of the prologue, just so people can get a, a sound of the mm-hmm. the music and syntax of it too. Soon the soil split and cracked, plants hurled into the coronaries of the earth, then eels and households descended into what was once solid. Noises were sealed by walls of loam. This is not the black forest of dreams or some infernal after. Here she was, fully unbraided, blood-crusted, with shivering knees. Here she was, a gallant prop elemented by wilderness, and did not think of widowhood, her burials, and murders. Witnesses disappeared. She waited until all was over, 
People came out of their nests and birds landed among the tree carcasses. A man by a small fire smiled at her, and she wondered if he was the kinsman redeemer, if she should offer her sandals so he could acquire her. She lay down by his feet. Some of his toes were missing. She rolled herself into a snail and waited for his hand on her hair. But the man gazed into the fire and spoke in a language she had never heard before. In fact, he did not speak at all through his tongue, but released what the quake had swallowed from his schlunt. He offered a fern a fire, and though she knew better, she accepted. The flame clenched in her fist. She keenly waited to see what else he would do to her. He took her hair between his hands and rubbed the streaks as if they had caught a cold. The world was still humming from rupture, and they used world and collapsed things to make gifts for each other. By the next day, they had towers of dog legs, orioles, pots, hot potatoes, bones, and a collection of tongues, eyes, and other body parts. And although she never knew who that man by the fire was and why he so kindly looked after her with rumbling noises and eager hands endeared by all the wrong parts, he spent hours stroking her eyelids, massaging her nails, shielding her armpits. And although she was not quite sure why he did not want to move inside of her like all the other men in time wanted to, why he lacked complete interest in her breasts, lips, and all the meanings between her legs. She stayed close to him and slept by his feet and missing toes. And although they could not make the other understand their thoughts, they garbled their minds and hearts to one another. You've been listening to Yanara Friedland read from Uncountry and Mythology. The word garbled seems important to me in this book. Um, the way time is garbled, the seasons are garbled, meaning feels garbled. There's this strange feeling of saying the word garbled when you say it, um, when anyone says garbled. Um, but there's also a, a strangeness to the syntax often in the book. So the, the speaking of uncountry isn't garbled, but it feels like it has a, that strange feeling of saying the word garbled. And it made me think of something that the LA Review of Books uh, said in a comment about Uncountry, that that there was a double mourning happening in the book, the mourning of what is lost and the mourning of the loss of language to describe what is lost. And I was wondering if, uh, about the emotional work this sort of defamiliarized language is doing uh, in the book, um, if you could talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing on, on the sentence level uh, with some of the language that you're choosing, this estrange, uh, an estranging sort of language. Can I ask what, could you say a little bit more what feels estranging about it? Uh, yeah, uh, just the sense that, um, maybe estranging is not the right word, but that the text uh, calls attention to its uh, itself as material. Uh, there's, it's not, the sort of book that you open it, you enter a fictive spell, and you come out having lived in, you know, when people say, the words just disappeared, and I was transported. This, somehow, like, the the soil of uncountry is also the words that are evoking the uncountry. That's not just the uncountry evoked by the words. 
Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that's. I know it does. I, I'm. I'm interested. I'm actually interested in how how people read it because I, you know, it's always a different. There's a, it's a different experience. In terms of language, I would say that because I'm, you know, I'm, my first language is German, and English. But English is the language I write in. That there seems to be nat. I seem to have a natural tendency for a syntax that's slightly in translation so and and I'm interested in that too because part, part what happens when you move to a new country or when you um, when you acquire a new language it's about assimilating right it's about sort of uh, adopting the intonations and um, the way listening closely to how people speak in that place and I'm as a writer interested in in what happens when you uh, maintain somewhat of the the original foreignness of where you came from. So, which is also why there is some German throughout the book, right? There's some words that kind of pop up here and there that interrupt or disrupt the the English, um, the the movement of English language. So for me, the being being in multiple places and not just being under the spell of English, for example, was was important. Um, and also to 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 actively acknowledge that um, these different origins or these different places can't just be um, neatly as, um, assimilated into into English. Mm. That would feel false in some ways. Well, when you look at the different women, artists that this book is in conversation with uh, Anna Mendieta, who's who's directly interrogating sort of a sense of exile and displacement from Cuba and Ellen Sitsu, who who is also with this idea of uncountry, but in general, um, you know, where does she belong is a, is a significant question. You also quote um, Clarice Lispector. Uh, I'm going to read a quote that she said, but both of you are writing in a language that's not your mother tongue, her being a Ukrainian Jew who's living in Brazil. Um, and she said, writing is the method of using the word as bait, the word fishing for whatever is not word. Once whatever is between the lines is caught, the word can be tossed away in relief. The non-word taking the bait incorporates it. So what saves you is writing absentmindedly. It feels like maybe that's something of what you're talking about, about having this double syntax. Mm-hmm. That finding that gap or finding that strangeness in the gap between the two languages. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I I love that idea of the word as bait, right? Because in some ways, language is always limiting, right? We're try- there's a, there's a sense of trying to capture something um, that you can't actually fully capture in language, and yet it, it's nece- it's a necessary. Uh, method at getting at getting something across or at sort of um, uh, claiming something fully. So so I like the idea of bait a lot. Yeah. Jesus. Well, if you'd be willing, I would love it if you'd... There's another section where that the language really leapt out to me. It's on uh, page 21. Her favorite story is death. When you die, you go down along a wall of stones pointing out of the earth like large bones... 
When you die, you fall down a well and bring blood to the moon's reflection. When you die, the bird-killing hind toe carries you to the arch of Orion. When you die, you go back to the clay and fog. When you die, the golems will cry. When you die, the world disappears. When you die, I will die. Mimi's son, born bad, is pulled out like water from a well. Large forceps embrace his neck. The tumble of sounds he pushes back. His arms, oars. Jugular vein thumps. There are squirrels on the roof. Mimi's words shake up rough. They fall out of her mouth like unripe berries. Several nurses have to hold her down. Mimi roars, woman of a thousand heads on all fours, the forceps still stuck somewhere, the egg sandwich vomited onto white sheets. The baby is suddenly surrounded by numb flesh, his head in the slow current of a dark pond. Can you talk a little bit about um, where that piece came from? So this character, Mimi, is uh, based on a great-grandmother of mine. And again, when I say based on, it's, it's not that this is Mimi is the great-grandmother, but it is inspired by her. And in some ways, she uh, holds the larger, maybe collective story of many of my ancestors who came over from the Ukraine um, after the pogroms um, around the turn of the 20th century. So... That story has a lot, came a lot out of some of the research I did in the Ukraine and also thinking about how, um, so what do you do when, you, when you've never really met an ancestor or, or a, a relative, but these stories about them very much live with you. And so this, this was, her story was a story that lived with me in a very active way. And so part of what I was interested in is sort of thinking about cross-pollinating the, the story that was handed over to me um, with some of the um, research I was doing both in the Ukraine and also um, in the U.S. at Ellis Island and other places, just sort of points of entry where people had come, come in. And then also going to Milwaukee and thinking about some of the, the more immediate family um, geographies there. Hmm. So the story is really a, a, a mix of my, my research, this, this kind of um, passed down memory of the ancestor, and then sort of as a th- the third piece would be just, again, the dream state, right? The, the, the information that comes to you when you're contemplating something, when you're activated around something, when you take charge of a particular subject, um, and what else synchronistically happens then um, while you're while you're occupied with that? And so a lot of, in, for me, that's in some ways I, I think of, of of these having written these stories was also sort of ritualistic or a kind of rite, where I would be you know for weeks or even months thinking about this particular person. Um, doing work and research, and then other things would happen that would inform the story, and that's kind of how it would come together. Mm. Well, you you divide the book into four histories, and I'm curious a little bit about um, 
both the the different substances you choose, so the history of ash, of breath, of hunger, of future, uh, but also the choice to do four sections. Uh, could you could you talk a little bit about um, the organizational principles around this? Uh, because I have I have all these theories actually, and I was just I would love to hear what you have to say first. And okay, I can't wait to hear your theories. <laughs> The structural, the it's a. It was interesting because this book, in some ways, I wrote the book very quickly, but the structure took forever to figure out. So that was a really like, that was a lot of labor trying to think about how to organize these different storylines. And initially, the what is now the four histories were houses, and again thinking along the lines of belonging, um, but that somehow felt. Uh, a little bit like an overkill. So I um, I dropped the, the notion of houses, and I, I was I returned to to history because I think in many ways it is um, the book is trying to find creative pathways into historical space, and so it is a lot about bringing together historical moments, um, you know, actual things that happened in history, so to speak, dates and, and what you would think of as more non-fictional elements with these more mythic spaces. And so um, I choosing the, the titles, History of Ash, History of Breath, in some ways I wanted to prepare the reader for that kind of um, disjuncture that happens or for that kind of meeting point where we have a historical consciousness but we also have this more mythical a historical space like ash, right? What is the history of ash? No one right. knows. So, um, so that was, I think, one one motivation, and and also thinking about how um, history is is for me a lot of what uncountry was about was taking care of certain pasts, sort of taking charge of them, taking care of them. It's like almost like there's so much out there that you could think about and put, put your attention to, but it's these very specific moments that as a writer you you approach and then in that moment you it's an act of caretaking for me um, that happens. So um, imbuing that with a certain presence, with attention, with, with labor. And um, I think that history... Uh, in a more conventional sense, is trying to do that, right? When we think of history, capital H, that's uh, take a caretaking of the past, but it often sort of occludes the more the, the messier spaces that occur between the I and inherited discourses or the I and the more irreparable aspects of the past. So history mm -hmm. tries to get rid of that. Um, and I was interested in thinking of, you know, the way breath, for example, or ash, um, I feel um, speaks more to the possibility of, of the um, maybe the me that messiness. Also, the ash, the breath, and hunger all feel very immaterial, which then lends me to feel that the history of future that that future is 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 potentially fragile and uncertain and immaterial because you're juxtaposing it with these other sort of substances and sort of non-substances yeah what are your theories <laughs> <laughs> well, i don't know if they were theories more than more so questions i wondered if if you if four had any symbolism if if this mm. was sort of a degradation of the four elements um if it was connected to the four worlds and jewish mysticism mm -hmm. um 
or whether it was just, oh, I have four, I just happen to have four, four sections. No, that's actually that, that, and I, you just, I just remembered that actually that in fact there was a lot of that. So the the four worlds were, were actually definitely part of um, uh, numbers in general. Eight was an important number. Four was an important number, um, and I'm trying to think if there was another Jewish mystical moment that needs to be. But numerology is 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 quite is, is quite important in midrash too. So that's that was definitely on my mind. Yeah. So so at the beginning of history of hunger, we have another prologue that talks about a woman recently found to have two DNAs, her own and that of a twin sister who had merged with her egg four days after their conception. And it almost feels, in some respects, like a reverse Adam and Eve story with the removal of the rib. But in this case, it's the, the, the rib, the twin sister, is, is merging with the DNA of the other person, um, which also sort of evokes the Lilith story. Um, and then the, the erased sisters, um, or not sisters, but Sarah and Hagar. And, um, and later in the section, you talk about the etymology for the word moth, that comes from the word maggot, from the word maggot, and that the people who watch or chase moths are called mothers, or same word as mothers, but I'm assuming pronounced mothers. Um, I, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about what you're interrogating here and elsewhere in the book around gender, if you can. I know that's a big question. Yeah. But uh, it, it's def- you're definitely digging deep into this um, notion of of womanhood and sisterhood and and um, uh, matrilineal um, inheritance yeah I think in this particular section uh, history of hunger which looks at Sarah and Hagar as you already mentioned I was always really struck by when you go back to the original story you know the the way the way that unfolds is, is that there is this sense that so Sarah is is um, is uh, Abraham's wife who is unable to bear any children, right? And she's considered barren. And then, um, as a consequence, she, at her suggestion, Hagar, the maid, is supposed to sort of bear the uh, the heir to to Abraham, and sort of she, Sarah suggests that they. Uh, go off together, and um, essentially that Abraham takes her as a as a mistress. And I, and then you know Isaac, uh, sorry, uh, Ishmael is born, and as they all live together, uh, it is said that Sarah grew hostile towards Hagar, who suddenly um, feels that she has gained in rank because of this, um, because of the, the the birth of the firstborn son. And um, she starts to feel jealousy. She starts to feel betrayal. She starts to feel um, envy, all these wonderful things. And so she basically uh, tells Hagar to, or tells Abraham to send Hagar away and also the, the infant son to, to be sent into the desert. So that's really roughly the, the storyline. And I was always, 
as you as one might be, you know, unnerved by that particular interpretation of the story. So that it's essentially it boils down to, you know, these two women sort of being at odds and being in competition with each other. Um, and then um, one of them has to essentially die. Um, she doesn't die because she's saved by an angel in the original story, but that is sort of the intention. And so I was interested, again, it's a lot of what happens at Uncountry for me, it's not to sort of remedy that and to say, oh, really, it's like this. Um, I do want to acknowledge it. And so part of those storylines are very much about competition and betrayal and, and sort of the, the these sort of uncomfortable feelings um, that um, may exist between any, any two people. Um, it's not necessarily gender specific. Um, but... I also wanted to give an alternative reading there or to give other options for reading that story um, and to really think about sisterhood, as you say, for example, and the potentials of that. So again, it's contentious storylines that grapple with each other in that section, I think. Um, the mother's story or the moth story is looking a lot at traditional, you know, the traditional role of, of being a mother, that this woman who is in some ways contending with motherhood, I think, and is struggling with with that role and and the moth sort of becoming an, an emblem of something that so the the nocturnal side. It's almost like I th I thought of I thought of Sarah and Hagar as 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 both sort of versions of each other, and one of them sort of coming out at night. Um, and one of them being maybe more um, visible and 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 seen and sort of, but the way they kind of interact with each other. Yeah, and and in the moth section, you have this wonderful part about how moths mate uh, with their backsides pressed against each other, and they become this sort of conjoined creature uh, with two heads and four wings, which is evocative of this story of the woman with the double DNA, but also of an apocryphal telling of Genesis where Eve isn't taken from Adam, but I, th I think they're, they're conjoined equal with, I don't remember if they have eight limbs and two heads and then they're divided. I don't, do you know this story? I don't know. Yeah, no, there's, an, sure. a, there's a, uh, one of the writings of, of Genesis that didn't get included in the mm. Bible. Mm. Eve, Eve is, a, is equal and connected to Adam and they're split kind mm. of like these moths. Mm. Um, and that brings us to uh, that section, which I would love for you to read part of. Um, and then maybe afterwards you could read, um, you could introduce and read um, Hagar on page 134. Yeah. As just an example of how that form works too. To consider a body, the blankets cover the body. She considers the tree outside. Every room plants a judgment. She does not like to read in bed or at the beach. She stares instead. The man comes into the room and takes off his clothes. She may consider the man nothing but a parallel breath, to ask the man if the dog is inside. She rarely desires at the beginning or end of the day, but has moments in the afternoon, moments quiet and humming. She knows what she means, to consider a body a body, a mind a mind to consider the day over. The man creates warmth in, in the bed. He is finding his position. Summer has the longest days. The man is not tired. The room is not selfless. It wants a scene. 
She rotates her ankle. She begins to know. To consider the ceiling, the edge. The man comes closer, his torso a bright heat approaching. At this moment, somewhere in the world, children are conceived and women have their asses slapped. A performer is good when they are not afraid of their audience. The glowing star on the wall might think of it differently. Every cell in the body has a value and a language. Every continent has lovers. Below this house is a graveyard to consider the corpses below. Every man has once thought of a woman's body as a landscape, to consider big legs, a widening blister, to consider a later day, another man. The man has his hands on her shoulder, a benign cramp forms in the other shoulder, to consider the quietude after, the next day, the hormonal rest. Her neighbors have a specific chemistry. They may undress for each other with the TV on silent, to consider how little we know about humans craving faces, to consider a body in instinct or absent. She could pour a glass of water or find a toilet. She walks up a street and not down. The man breaks the silence, has an idea. Droughts in summer are lasting longer and longer. The Atlantic is her favorite ocean. To consider her sweet tooth, to consider her family sleeping. The man has created sweat to stick himself to her back. Nights come back. We can have a night every day. The bed has sunk to consider a game, a child's play. She turns around, she has turned to consider the other side, to consider chance. Her breath is in the sheets. The heat has a name, is something other than her but right beside her and soon within. The man has a face that disappears into a body to consider who the man is, to consider who she is, to not consider it. Hagar. A woman is a maid. A woman is a mistress. A woman is asked a favor. A woman grows precious. A woman has a body. A woman bears what the other cannot. A woman is cast. A woman is shunned. A woman is solitary. A woman has nothing. A woman is sent to the desert. A woman dies. A woman is met by an angel who shows her a well. A woman is protected. A woman lies down on the earth. A woman is a stranger. We've been listening to Yanara Friedland read from Uncountry, a Mythology. Both this book and your book from Essay Press are, I think, could be considered mixed form. You called your other book uh, part essay, part poem, and this seems like it has, maybe this one's harder to define, part fiction, part memoir, part poem. That last piece feels closer to poetry. Um, but it doesn't feel just like an experiment or a cross-pollination between forms, but also one that is a, a, a cross-pollination between different types of memory and forgetting collective memory and personal memory. And you've said that the loss and recovery of memory is a structural device throughout Uncountry. And I, I was curious by that phrase. I, I didn't entirely understand it and was wondering what you meant when you said that. 
Well, I think in some ways, as as memories get passed down through generations through time, there's always a loss that occurs, right? So certain essential pieces travel, migrate along, but other pieces sort of fall by the wayside. And I think in some ways I've felt myself with this book and, and more recently with other book projects as well that I'm always interested in the, um, in the revisiting of, of the path of that memory, in some ways traveling um, backward and thinking about how it's been passed along and where it stopped and what still lies by the wayside. So thinking of all the um, ways, I mean, really, these are components of memories that we won't really know if they, they were ever part of the, the real original memory. But what happens once we re-engage with a memory, some of these insights and some of the information that that occurs, I think, has to do with what was lost. So in that way, it's also, I think, recovering mm. um, aspects of it that um, no one has access anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, we, you did touch on, on earlier about your, your first language being German, and you're also a translator. And I'm curious about the, how the act of translating, uh, carrying carrying language across that border um, has affects this book other than with regards to syn- its syntax, especially because you choose like Unica Zorin's um, anagrams, which you could argue maybe they can't be translated. You, you're gravitating, at least in this case, to work that um, is particularly difficult to translate. Is there something about the act of engaging with... Um, that difficult, if not impossible, task, and and um, and what you're engaging with in uncountry, mm. in some way. Yeah, I I definitely think that when I use the when I call myself a translator, I think a lot of it as something that has to do with carrying German perhaps into English, but more specifically, it has to do with the way I approach writing, and. One way I think of, of translation or the writer as translator is uh, going back to what I was saying earlier on, engaging in, say, a landscape or a particular memory in the way then you translate, carry across uh, certain components and in, in information. And so one one thing that really informed Uncountry was the, this reading or the translation of landscapes, but more specifically invisible landscapes that I consider sort of hovering over um, geographical locations so that all these, and this invisible landscapes is a term that uh, comes from, I think Ken C. Ryden first, first coined that, um, this sort of an aspect of cartography almost, right? That it's, it's not the fact and ratio driven cartography, but it's the, all the memories, all these layers um, of, of experience and events that have taken place at a certain location, but that are invisible. And so the writer's tasks being in some way to engage with that invisible landscape and to bring it onto the page. And so that to me is an act of, of translation. In terms of Onikotsurin's work, I was interested in her for many different um, reasons. Uh, the the anagrams and 
what I was trying to do with anagrams in the way that relates to uncountry, I think it has also a lot to do with the notion of the, the openings and concealments of language, right? Because an anagram is in some ways a is not so much about uh, coming up with content, but rather sort of working with a, a given line, right? And then sort of seeing what, so the rearrangement of, of letters, right, is what anagrams do. The Unikatsurin in particular worked with certain proverbs. So she would take a proverb um, and then work with the letters of the proverb and create the, the, po the poem um, based on the, on, on the letters given. And she was very um, strict about it, so she, you couldn't really take any other letters for help or for, for sort of substitute. So she was really kind of constrained to, to whatever she was, um, to, to the line that, to the original line that she, that she was working with. And again, this is, I think, for me, uh, has a lot to do with the way uncountry functions too. I'm looking at a particular source text or a particular storyline, say um, Hagar's storyline, and what are sort of what are some of the um, what is given there, both as concealment and also as opening. So, what is not being said, and how can I insert my consciousness or my sort of interpretation into the into the lines between that, but then also um, you know, what, what is already given as material to work with. Hmm. Well, one of the th things I would love to, as we sort of approach the end of our conversation, is, is to talk about writing art in this particular period of time. Um, in one interview, you were asked what the theoretical concerns are behind your writing and what kinds of questions you're trying to answer what even you think the current questions are. And you answered with a list of questions. Uh, you said, how can I approach you with care? What is hiding behind our disastrous present? What are the invisible worlds communicating? What is the root of this country's sorrow? How will we live here now? And somehow I connected the, these questions to a couple of sentences in a piece that you wrote for the Elephants magazine called Orientation, where you say, this backward stare, this return song, is not a nostalgia for origin, not a mourning for a burning city, for all of our cities are burning. It is, it must be, a tracing of what, on that first spur, roving forward, storming ahead, was overlooked, and which, through surreptitious circumstances, may still lie wayside, waiting to be seen. It made me wonder if this was in some ways sort of an ars poetica for you, uh, an aesthetic or ethical approach to how to create art when when all of our cities are on fire. Uh, but I, but whether it is or not, I would love to hear, and I'm sure a lot of artists today would love to hear your thoughts about about you know writing, creating art, art and creating objects and uh, in our current situation. I would so so starting with that quote that's particularly relevant for me right now because I am working on a project that again returns me to uh, Germany and to um, to the country you could say of my origin and I was really uh, I have been really interested in the way 
and I guess this is as I'm saying this out loud, I'm realizing how just it's the, in some ways it's the same thing that Uncountry is doing. It's just a little bit kind of packaging it a little bit differently, but it's thinking about how history never actually ends, right? So this kind of idea of a closed past is sort of a myth or is, a, is an illusion. And I'm really interested in, in the ways in which sort of uh, historical events, so in particular right now I'm looking at um, the time in Germany sort of pre-World War One, which was we just had that centennial, you know, um, r r roundabout. Um, and so thinking about how 100 years later, um, going back to Berlin, what is what is similar, what is still happening, what is sort of reoccurring, and and what might be different, or from where have we moved on? And to me, the feeling is very much of a circularity, um, mm -hmm. and so I'm interested in treating history not as something that is closed off or that is ever finished, but that kind of keeps um, keeps moving forward and is part of now as much as as new things are happening, right? So it's kind of this um, thinking of the way time maybe functions not as linear, but as, as, as circular. I think this, the, the task right now of how to write when all our cities are burning um, does come back to, and, and maybe that that's, that's a, Maybe that's not enough for some people, but for me right now, it, it has a lot to do with what am I, what do I pay attention to, and what do I choose to take charge of? So, um, and and thereby, what am I charging? So the question of of again, there's vast materials to work with, and to to be very specific around what do I take up and choose to illuminate. And I'm thinking also of, you know, a writer like Sebald who um, uh, was important for me with with this with uncountry and the way he would really kind of take up the most um, forgotten remote uh, unimportant places and objects and sort of imbue them with a kind of consciousness or with thought or with um, attention simply and I find that a very powerful gesture and to to go into into the small places or into forgotten places that um, may not be getting that much visibility and to charge those I think is is hmm. feels central to to my work at least yeah and there's it, that almost sounds or feels like it has an archaeological impulse to it. And it reminds me, I don't know if that seems strange to you or not, but it reminds me, going back to the beginning of our conversation, the quote by Hélène Sisu, which we never quoted, but one part of it, she says, I, I like beings who belong to removal inhabitants of the uncountry, of the in-country, of the country hidden in the country, or lost in the country, of the other country, the country below, the country underneath. And the way that in this sense, if we think of the country below and the country un underneath, it's not just that time is circular, but that it's spatial, that we're, we're walking on history that's here at the same time. Like we're, like you can dig and the history mm -hmm. is there also. And the digging, finding, metaphorically speaking, the, the unseen things that need to be charged that aren't being charged sounds like that's somehow connected to that as well. Yes, I think that's um, that's very true, and I 
I do often feel like I'm digging, actually. That's interesting that you, that you bring that up, that somehow writing for me relates very much to a, a going underneath. And, um, and even um, reading, sometimes I think of the underworld journey, you know, as a kind of process for writing. It's a sort of like having to vacate something of, of the here and now in this, in this kind of um, the, the, the present world and the visible world and having to sort of descend to go into a, a process of dis- descending in order to get to what the nuggets that lie buried um, yeah. in the dark. And I also think there is, um, I was just trying to remember if, I don't think it was Unikotsurn herself who said this, but it might have been her, uh, someone who wrote about her, who talked about her interest or her part of her compulsion for writing having to do with the mythical poverty of her times mm-hmm. and there's something for me um, that again that's that you know that was said like maybe the 1960s but that feels or the 1950s but that feels relevant today as well too so the the mythical poverty and sort of how to how to re-engage with or find a kind of mythic quality um, in our in our daily lives um, that seems important um, as a as a form of instruction how to move forward or, or what how to how to live here now mm-hmm. maybe we can end with uh, the section called falling mm-hmm. falling I'm falling out of a window pushed by a man in a red flannel jacket I sat on the sill next to a small cacti arrangement. I'm halfway down. I cannot help but think that fathers are powerful magicians. I laugh and spit rushes into the air. Yes, upwards. Below, a caravan of children snakes across the street. The one day I fall out of a window. The street looks like a fat artery, a border, or a landscape of obstacles. I know we rarely get to do this, join the leaving, the animals, and sail. I remember that I never looked up the meaning of the word interstice. My finger will not trace the dictionary anymore, only infinity. I pass a balcony with steaming teapots, mothers over brunch. I see two birds in the crown of a tree, devouring each other. I would like to kiss the face of a stranger while the wind undresses me to be called the Comet of Awe. I would like to slip out of the generous handshake and scream words, beavers, Florentine, shuttle ass. We sleep with our tongues out. Will there be a crack on the street? Will I bounce off the black car metal? Will the dog bark? I flip my body, my face sunlit. I do not believe in blood or the second coming. I forlive death. I will return as a horse, sleet, bad breath. Give me a piece of behind. Of what you said, of what you said, of what you said, I think. I'm almost done falling. I'm not a leaf. Aluminum, fajitas, tennis courts. These might be my last four words. The crowd below is collectively raising their arms to imitate a gravity shield. They pray in combinations. The balcony mothers wave, utterly, utterly. Do you want to know how? 
Do you think I should do it face down or back broken into asphalt? I once was in a city in a tram accident. All the wine bottles broke and red the floor. Someone cried, this is not happening. The noise approaches, the very familiar sounds. I must be close. This is the beginning of a new sequence. Death of the horizontal, birth of the vertical. We can never be clever enough. But I know that any minute my God will come forward, step out of the hazel, and change my course. Thanks for being on Between the Covers today, Yanara. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. We're talking today to writer Yanara Friedland about her latest book from Nomi Press, On Country and Mythology. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>